So glad to be with you this morning. If you're not familiar with who I am, my name is Philip McWhorter, like Pastor Peter mentioned. I, uh, I serve here at, at, in the staff at the church, and uh, I have a beautiful wife, and she's here today, uh, Hannah McWhorter, and I have two kids, two kids, uh, a son who's three, his name's Eli, and a daughter, a one-year-old daughter named Lottie. Now, if you're visiting today, that may have come as a shock to you uh, that I have two kids. Uh, I don't look like I should have two kids. But don't worry, the people that have been here for a long time, they are still in shock that I have two kids and a wife. So, But this morning, I get the privilege of giving a word from the Lord in our sermon series entitled, The Trinity. If you aren't familiar with what the Christians believe about this God that we serve, here's a quick overview. Uh, we Christians believe in one God who is three persons, so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to, last week, Pastor Peter talked about the person of the Father from an Old Testament passage in the book of Ruth. And this week, I'm going to be talking about the Father as well from a New Testament passage in the book of Luke. And we're going to continue in this series. In the next two sermons in the series, we'll be talking about the Son, uh, Jesus. And uh, the final two sermons will be about the Holy Spirit. So stay tuned to this sermon series. It is so cool. I'm so excited in the preparations for everything Uh, because I'm a little bit of a Bible nerd, and uh, I really enjoy this sermon series. And if you don't uh, share the same enthusiasm, it's okay. I kind of get this a lot when I talk about like the the book The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings or other fantasy stories. There's like this little like this little switch that goes off in people's brains when they're when I talk to them about it like this. You know, and so I understand if you don't share my same enthusiasm, I, I uh, needless to say, I, I cope with rejection really well. So with that in mind, let's just jump in this morning to uh, the, the message. My title today is Lost and Found, Lost and Found, and uh, let's open up our Bibles today, God's Word to Luke chapter 15. If you don't have your Bibles today, don't worry. It will be up on the screen for all to share. So in Luke chapter 15, we read that Jesus is talking to a large crowd. And in that crowd are sinners and tax collectors. Okay. And I think the author Luke was trying to tell us something, maybe make a point with using the word sinners and tax collectors but he was also just describing the kinds of people that were in the crowd. So sinners and tax collectors were usually the, the worst of the worst in society. In contrast, however, you have the Pharisees and scribes who uh, start to gather around Jesus as well. And so Luke describes the sinners and the tax collectors in comparison with the Pharisees and the scribes. Okay? And the Pharisees and the scribes, the Pharisees, would be the religious elite at the time. And so these are the types of people that are starting to gather around Jesus in this crowd. And uh, then out comes all the comments and all the critiques about Jesus and some, from the Pharisees. And something you have to know about the Pharisees in the Bible, these people were, were referred to as vipers. 
uh, which is not a compliment, even in our day, to call somebody a viper. So, and you'll see that in verse 2, I think. So verse 2 here, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. And you just got to love Jesus' response here in verse 3. So he told them this parable. So he told them a story. But before we go on, I'd like to talk about this word parable. It's not really a normal, everyday English word that we use. And uh, sometimes, you know, if we don't know the word, we can gloss over it. But there's a lot of really good meaning here. And like I said earlier, I am a Bible nerd. So I like to go back to the original Greek to try to understand some things. And the word parable comes from the word parabole. Okay? It's two words put together, para, meaning beside or alongside, and then you have bole, which means uh, to cast, to throw, to cast. All right, So uh, literally, you throw or cast something alongside something else. So Jesus, if you can imagine here, is f- casting a story alongside the lives of the listeners, alongside the lives of the listeners. And uh, simply put, a parable is a story that parallels a principle. Or like I grew up learning, a parable is, a, is an earthly story with a spiritual meaning. And so, you know, if you ever encounter your friends, you can now beat them at Bible trivia with the word parabole. So there you go. You're welcome for that. I know you all do that. So, but back to the story here. Back to the story Jesus, in response to the Pharisees' comments, tells this parable. Now, it's really, really interesting that Luke uses the singular form of parable because it's kind of confusing in that sense because there are three stories right after that verse. There are three distinct stories, but he uses this parable singular. And I think that means that we're supposed to take the three stories as one parable one principle with maybe three different perspectives on the same principle, on the same principle. And so uh, Jesus begins to tell these, this parable in response to the Pharisees, and you, we get the principle from the response of the Pharisees, from the critiques of the Pharisees, okay? So that's what we got to keep in mind as we read these three things. So the first two stories are very similar to one another. They start out by saying, what man would, or what woman would? And they begin to tell about how the man had a sheep, and he lost the sheep, and he went and searched for it, found the sheep, and told his friends, and everybody was happy and rejoiced. And then, the same thing with the woman. She loses a coin in her house. She sweeps the whole house, finds it, and tells all her friends, and there's uh, rejoicing. And so... In these two stories, you can kind of hear Jesus answer the Pharisees' critique by, by showing how absurd their critique really was. You can almost hear Jesus saying, well, you know, these sheep and these coins, I think, you know, for me, I think they re- represent the, the, the sinners and the tax collectors. But you can almost hear him saying, like, these sheep and coins, why wouldn't I go find them? Why wouldn't I do that? Why wouldn't anybody? You know, what man wouldn't go and find these things? And then you get to the third story. And it's, it's a little different. It's told in narrative form. Okay? And you can see this 
in verse 11. This is the start of the story. And he, Jesus, said, there was a man who had two sons. And if you know the Bible a little bit, you can probably tell that this is the start to a famous parable called the parable of the prodigal son. Okay. But do you ever use the word prodigal except for maybe (laughs) describing this parable? Probably not. Uh, So what does it mean? Uh, I actually, whenever I was reading this, I had to ask myself that same question. I don't use that word a lot. So again, Bible nerd, going back to the original language, I learned a a little bit about this word prodigal, but we get the English word prodigal from the King James Version. And I'd like to read you that so you can see where it is in the story. And I'm going to read the New King James Version. It just takes out like the these and the thous so that we can read it a little bit easier. So, and the younger of them said, verse 12, to his father, father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with, there's the word, prodigal living. So this word prodigal is translated in other translations as reckless or wasteful, which I think is good. But I also learned that there's this another meaning that it can take on, and it, and it means without restraint, without restraint. So he was, the son was living without restraint. And so keep that in mind as we're talking about this, because uh, so often we read these stories, and I know I do this, and we take the extremes, We say, look at this prodigal son, and my life doesn't really look like this son's life, so it doesn't really apply to me. There's nothing I can learn. But I can imagine, because it's true with me, that there are areas, maybe small, tiny areas, but areas nonetheless in our lives where we would classify that area as without restraint, without restraint. So keep that in mind as we're going to continue on. So, but like I said earlier, we're going to be focusing on the father today. And after I retell this parable, I have some observations for us about the father in the story in hopes that we can see our heavenly father more clearly. However, I would like to pray first, if y'all are cool with that. So here we go. Heavenly father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you that we can gather in Jesus name today. Your word says where two or three are gathered. There you are. You're here with us. You are ever present with us. And where you are is exactly where I want to be. And so thank you, God, that we can gather today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to every heart. Please speak to every heart exactly the message that you have for them today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So there was a father, and he had two sons. And the younger son came up to him one day and said, Dad, give me my inheritance right now. Now pause here for a second. Uh, there's something significant about an inheritance. Okay, back in those days, the, in Jewish custom, when the father died, the estate would be split amongst his sons. Okay, and then the older son would receive a majority stake in the inheritance, while the younger son would receive the remainder So when the younger son said this to the father, he basically was saying, you're as good as dead to me, dad. Give me my money. Give me what is owed to me. And so here's the response of the father after that. He divides his property up and gives it to 
the, the Bible says them, to the sons. So he gives his livelihood, his possessions to his sons. So the younger son goes off to a far land and he wastes his inheritance on living without restraint. And then there's a famine that comes in the land and he gets hungry. So he hires himself out to this man and he starts to work in the pig pens. Now there's something about Jewish culture too here that's important about the pig pen. The pig pig was ceremonially unclean in this culture. This was detestable to for a Jewish man to be working in a pig pen. And so what we would say nowadays can apply, but it's a little bit heavier than that for the, for the Jewish culture or the listener at the time. But we would say that this son hit rock bottom. But in, it's a little lower than that in Jewish customs here. So he hits rock bottom, and then he comes to his senses. It's a very important phrase. He comes to his senses, and he says this, the servants in my father's house have it way better than me. They actually have food. I don't have anything. So he goes home. He walks home. And when the younger son was still a far off distance away, his father sees him. And he feels compassion for him. And he runs and he embraces and he kisses him. It's a beautiful scene. And then he tells his servants, bring the best robe. Bring the ring. Bring some shoes. And kill the fattened calf so that we can all enjoy. My son, and this is the famous line here, who was dead and is alive, who was lost and is found. And that's where I get my title for today, lost and found. Lost and found. Now, if this parable had stopped right there, it would have been similar to the other two stories. You got the lost, found, celebration, the end. But it keeps going. The older son was out in the field and he calls one of his servants over and says, hey, what's going on? And the servant tells him this, your brother has come back home and your father has killed the fattened calf to celebrate receiving him home. And the older brother gets angry about this. So the father comes and talks to him and says, and the older brother complains to his father and says this, I've been with you the whole Time and not once did you give me a young goat for me and my friends to enjoy. But this son of yours, the moment he comes home, you kill the fattened calf. Now, the fattened calf in this day was reserved for the most special of special occasions. So, he, the older brother, is expressing his jealousy right now and his anger. And then the father says this, and you can almost hear the sadness in his voice. He says, everything I have is yours. Because he, he had split up the property amongst his sons. Everything I have is yours. It was fitting for sacrificing or killing this uh, uh, calf to receive my son who was dead and is alive, who was lost and it is found. And that's the end of the story. It's a major cliffhanger. What happens next? I don't know anybody who really doesn't like this story. It's an amazing story. Jesus is a genius, okay? Uh, This story 
is one that you can look at and say, man, I wish my dad was more like this father, right? Like, I don't, I mean, don't you wish that your father had more of those same traits that the father in the story has? I know growing up, uh, I wished that my father would have had those traits, but now that I'm on the other side of fatherhood, I don't know if that's possible. Because if you truly read this story, what is this father doing? It's crazy. And I hope that you can keep that in mind as, we, as I tell you these observations that I have about the father. And keep that in mind. Number one, my first observation here about the father in this story is this. The father honors the son's request to leave. The father honors the son's request to leave. And it comes from verse 12. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. If my son Eli came up to me and said, Dad, give me my inheritance. First off, I would laugh in his face. Okay? And then I would probably call him a crazy person. And then I would say, you need to go tell your mom exactly what you just told me so that she could get a good laugh out of it too. That would be my initial response. But that's not what the father does here. And if you know anything about Mosaic law, what the younger brother does, the younger son does right here is detestable. He what he does is he dishonors his father, says, you are as good as dead to me. And this was uh, grounds for disowning him at the, for, on the least bit. But at worse, he could be been stoned for dishonoring his father. He broke one of the big 10, okay? He broke one of the big 10 laws in Mosaic law. And so this may sound crazy to us if you really read it, of how the father responds, but it definitely would have sounded crazy to the listener at the time because this was unheard of reaction. And this is why I get my principle here because the heavenly father, and I can assure you this, the heavenly father, he relates to us like this father related to the son. The father God will not force you to stay with him to stay in relationship with him. You do have a choice in this relationship to stay or to go. And I also like to have this uh, comparison here that the father's house where the father is is like this house, the father's house, the big C church. You have, a, you have the choice to stay in God's family, to stay in the church community, or go. You have that choice. Maybe some of you have already decided in your hearts to go. But the thing about the Heavenly Father is He's not going to force you to stay. But also, what's really interesting about this story, this response of the Father is, not only does He not force the, the Son to stay, but He actually honors the request by saying, here's the inheritance. What? What is that response? So as he's leaving, he says, as you're going out the door, here's some money. I mean, that's crazy to me. But this is how the father reacts to us. 
Uh, Romans eleven twenty nine says, the gift and call of God are irrevocable. You can't get rid of it. He gives you talents. He gives you resources. He gives you gifts, even if you want to walk out the door. That's crazy. And I have this real fear that one day one of my kids is going to walk away from me or walk away from the Lord. And I say that fear out loud, and I, I uh, confess that in, in the hopes that you know, God will heal me of that fear. But it was easy for me to put myself into the story as the father, knowing my fear of how would I respond truly in this moment. I don't know what I would do. Part of me feels like I'd want to keep him in the house, keep, do whatever I can to keep him around. As far as to say, force him to stay in, in the banner of, I know what's best for you. But I also know, when I thought about this, I can imagine how much love this father must have had in order to let his son go. To, to be willing to let him go. That seems like a ton of love in his heart for that to happen. And you do have to ask yourself this question. You have to ask, do you want people to love you based on obligation? I mean, would you want anybody to stick around because they had to? I don't think the Father God relates to us that way. I don't think he wants us to stick around in relationship with him in his house, out of obligation. And so, if we want to go, he lets us go. Father God will honor your request to leave. We see that in this story. And you have to ask yourself one question. Would you want it any other way? Is it truly love if there's no choice? That was my first observation. My second observation is this. The father looks and waits for the son. And it comes from verse 20. Excuse me. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. I mean, can you imagine the father sitting on his front porch, maybe in a rocking chair or like I have in my back porch, like a swing, and just waiting for the day when his son would come home. He's looking and he's waiting for his son to come home. And in order to see someone far off in the distance, I think you have to be looking for that person, looking for that thing and waiting patiently. Because if you go do something else, you might miss it. You might miss it. So here's a question for you. If you mess up big time, I mean big time with your parents ever, if you do, what is that picture of their demeanor towards you. What would be that picture? Is it this, folding the arms? Is it tapping the feet? Maybe furrow the brow like this? Is that what you picture in your mind, how their demeanor is? What about the words they say? Is it one of condemnation, of guilt, of shame? Are you waiting for the proverbial, I told you so speech? Is that what you picture when you mess up with your parents? I mean, those would probably be natural parent reactions, would you say? Natural, what would happen naturally? But that's not what this father does in this story. 
As soon as he sees his son, he feels compassion in his heart and overflow, and he runs. He runs to meet him. He embraces him and kisses him. And did you know that that is exactly how the Heavenly Father relates to you and me? 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why are we ever so scared to admit our shortcomings and our failures to Father God? I think it has to do with this picture of who we think God is. But that's not who we see in this story. Father God looks and waits for us. And let me tell you this. He is always at his house. He's always at his house. So that was observation number two. Observation number three is the father invites the sons to come back into the house. And I said sons, plural, because uh, there was two invitations here. One for the older son and one for the younger son. And the younger son here is verse 21. And the son said to to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the robe, the best robe, and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and the shoes on his feet. So the son was planning on coming home as a servant, but the father restores him as a son. It's amazing. And there are gifts here that the father gives in response and they do have some significance, okay? So the, the best robe, you can say from rags to new robe, best robe. It's kind of like a symbol of like new life. Or there's also this, uh, it symbolizes favor. Just remember the story of Joseph and the technicolor dream coat in Genesis. His father favored Joseph and so he gave him the robe. That's favor. Sons in the house receive favor, okay? Now, the ring has, is likely the signet ring of the family. And the signet ring was used for contracts and business negotiations. And it's a symbol of authority. So as a son, you have favor. And as a son, you have authority. And finally, the shoes. And the father likely gave him the shoes because he probably didn't have any shoes on. He probably didn't have any shoes on. Sometimes there's not always a super spiritual meaning out of every, every word that the Bible says. He probably didn't have any shoes on. He's probably barefoot. So that was the first invitation. He came in thinking he was a servant. He got to be a son again. It's amazing. So that's the first. Here's the second one. It comes with the older brother, verse 26. And he called one of the servants and asked, what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. Refused to go in. So the older brother was out in the field angry about the first invitation that was given to the younger brother while at the same time refusing the invitation that was given to him. But we're actually not given the response of either son explicitly in the text. I can assume that maybe the younger son you know, accepted the invitation to come into the house. I don't know about the older brother. I don't know about the older brother, but I don't think that's the point of the story here. I, I don't think Jesus is telling us 
so that we see the end of the story, per se. I think what Jesus is doing is exactly what my third point is. There's an invitation to respond. Father God invites us all all to come back in the house. All of us, all of us to come back in the house. And I have one final observation from this passage that I'd like to share. And since this is a sermon series about uh, the Trinity, I was curious, do, do we see all three persons in the story? And for the father, it's a little obvious. It's the father in the story. But the Holy Spirit and the son, maybe you have to dig a little deeper to see them in action. So the first instance with the Holy Spirit, I see there's two instances. The first is with the younger and the second was the, is with the older. And with the younger brother, we see here in verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. So it says when he came to himself, the Holy Spirit is the person of the Trinity who enlightens us to the truth and brings us back to ourselves. The Holy Spirit cuts our hearts and tells us the truth. The servants of the Father have it way better than I do right now. The Holy Spirit is the one who searches us in those pig pens, if you will, and leads us out. Psalm 139 says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We cannot bring ourselves to ourselves. Yes, that's right. The Holy Spirit does that. Amen. He is doing it right now as I speak. I trust you, Holy Spirit, that you are revealing who the Father is to all of us, even me as I'm preaching. Thank you, God. So that was the first instance of the Holy Spirit. The second instance comes with the older brother in, in verse 26. It says, and he called one of the servants and asked, what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. I believe the Holy Spirit here is the servant being called to speak the truth to the, uh, the older brother. It's because both sons were told the truth. The truth by the Spirit. The younger son was cut to the heart and he walked home. The older son hardened his heart and refused the truth. And we see the Holy Spirit here, but what about the son? What about the storyteller, Jesus? I believe Jesus here is the fattened calf, killed for the celebration of the father receiving his sons. And this is the gospel that we see here. Going back to verse 27, he says, Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Jesus is the reason why any of us can even have a heavenly father. This is the reason why we can even relate to the father. What happened in us is that the father took the consequences of our prodigal living, our living without restraint, and our hardening of heart. He took that and he placed that on Jesus, and Jesus died 
in our place. That is the good news that we talk about. And Jesus is the reason why any of us can have forgiveness. We can, the reason why any of us can even confess that we have sin is because Jesus, Jesus is the glue that holds all of this story together. But even if this, you know, all of this is really cool information or just, you know, something to check off about knowing the Bible, please just don't let this go by, by you and not take root, all these observations. This parable may have been told to answer a critique about Jesus receiving sinners, you know, and we see here that the Pharisees are the older brother and the sinners are the younger brother. But there are areas in our lives where we can identify with both brothers. Maybe there's blatant sin in our lives, like pride, pity pride, selfishness, jealousy, impurity. Maybe there's those things that we can say, that's the younger brother's tendency. Or maybe there's this, this sense of hardening our heart towards what God says and the truth about things, like the Pharisees. Personally, I struggle with being a Pharisee. I struggle to apologize for things, mistakes that I make. I like to justify or find arguments or you know, find loopholes in the story just to get off the hook in a sense. And it drives my wife insane, and rightly so. It should. I mean, I act like a Pharisee, but this is my story from my life. I was always the good kid that just had a problem with the other people. So I received, at the age of seven, I received Jesus into my heart to be the Lord and Savior of my life, and I was water baptized shortly after that. But that was just the start of God revealing and healing this sense of superiority that I had felt towards people. And there's this one time in college where uh, my wife Hannah looked at me and said, you don't care about anybody. I go, oh, okay. And I took that to heart and I prayed. And I said, Father, help me care about people. You know what? He did. Hallelujah. There's some, a few kinks <laughs> that he's working out, but I'm so grateful for the grace that I have received. But I've also had my fair share of prodigal son living, of the younger brother. And what's worse is I grew up in church, and so I I knew better. (laughs) But I'm so grateful that we have a Father in heaven who receives, who receives me, even with both tendencies. And I imagine there are areas in each of our lives, each of your lives, that you, would, you can identify yourself with the younger or older brother. Blatant sin or denial of sin. And I want to end the sermon just like Jesus ended the parable. Invitation to respond. The, the end of the story is up to you in this sense. You've probably heard this phrase before, God's love is unconditional. And I, 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 I think that comes from a really good place. Uh, and I, for the most part, I think it's true. But it, it does have unintended consequences as applied to relationship. And that's why we see here in this story that however God's love, and he doesn't change, 
His love doesn't change based on us. But in relationship with him, there is a condition. And we see it with the younger brother, and we see it with the invitation to respond. Come home. Come home. In whatever area of your life that you've walked away from God, it might not be your whole life, it might be something small. What area have you walked away? Come home. Come home in those areas. Where have you hardened your heart? Come home today. Why not wait? The invitation today is to come. And maybe you've, you've walked away from God maybe in your prayer life. Maybe you've been burnt out by prayers that weren't answered the way you wanted them to be answered. Come home today. Begin praying. Begin having that relationship with the Father If your relationship with God is strained, maybe you've stopped reading his word, come home. And I promise you, the the God I serve is not going to fold his arms. He is not going to furrow his brow at you. He's not going to speak condemnation. He's not going to speak shame to you. Because what the Father does in this story is exactly what Father God does to us. Open arms, runs to embrace us, waits for us to come home home. And that's what I want our invitation to be today. Come home. In this short last song, I can have the, the team come up uh, and pray, the, the, some people to pray and also the worship team. That's what we're going to do. There's an invitation to respond. There's an invitation to come. Literally come to the altar if you want to. If you feel like that's a symbol of you coming to the Lord. But also, if you want to stay in your chairs and just pray personally with God, or if you just want to sing the song. So after I pray, I'm going to ask everybody to stand up after I pray, and we're going to have this moment of response. So Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you so much that we can respond to you today, that you give us the opportunity to come home, that we have that option is amazing. Thank you, Jesus, that you have purchased our opportunity to come to the Father. And so right now, Holy Spirit, I ask that you draw every single person in any area of their life that they need to come back to you, Father God. I just ask that you would draw them near in these moments. Amen. You can stand.